Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air live with Mr. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content that we put out there on the internet. Go to focuscompounding.com to get access to free investment write-ups from Jeff going all the way back to 2005. If you're interested in learning more about our money management services, uh, reach out to me at andrewatfocuscompounding.com. If you hit that invest with us tab on our website, you'll learn everything that you need to learn about us. Uh, what is Focus Compounding? Well, let me tell you, we are a long only equity focused hedge fund located in Dallas, Texas. Uh, we are focused on identifying high quality companies in an overlooked pocket of the market. Hence our strategy focusing on overlooked stocks. Uh, we do have a managed accounts arm and we do have a hedge fund arm for individuals that do not meet certain qualifications for the hedge fund. Uh, what we're looking for, we're looking for an overlooked stock, a business that's predictable, um, uh, a great industry or solid industry. Then of course, the price that we're willing to pay needs to be in our framework. So um, uh, won't bore you with the details. If you listen to us every single week, uh, you pretty much know our framework and the types of businesses we're looking for. Uh, but if you don't, you could go to the Invest With Us tab and uh, pull all of this information. And of course, read just thousands and thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of words from Jeff on his investing framework and how he thinks about businesses. Um, our investment minimum for the fund is $2 million, uh, no management fee, and we charge 15% of the profits. Uh, with a high watermark and then manage accounts, it's a $250,000 uh, investment minimum uh, with a 2.5% management fee, 0% incentive fee, no high watermark. Um, and we custody those assets at Interactive Brokers. We are registered with the state of Texas. So be sure to check out the disclaimers in the about section on uh, this YouTube video, if that's where you're watching it or in the description on the podcast app. And of course, that disclaimer is also on our website. Uh, read our disclaimers. This is not investment advice. We are just two guys that love investing, talking about it on the podcast. So where we sit currently today, the market, Jeff, November 9th, 2022. I feel like I could just repaste um, the exact slide deck from you know the past like two months, but the S&P 500 is down 21% year to date. 10 year yield currently sits at 4.151%. Crude oil, $85.59. And natural gas still hovering around $6, currently at $5.93. Um, Jeff, have you been following everything that's going on in like crypto land and in the markets the past few days? Uh, no, I'm somewhat aware of them. Okay. So, so funny. I was talking to a buddy and I was saying, Hey, do you have any topics that you recommend uh, for us to go around the show? And he brought that up and he said, but also I feel like Jeff will probably say, I've read a few headlines. I'm aware of it, but I don't mo know much about it. And I figured that's exactly what would be your uh, answer on that, which is good. It shows that you do not focus on all the craziness that goes on every single day in the markets. Long story short, there's a lot of information coming out about FTX and its collapse. And uh, it's going to be interesting to follow over the next uh, 
you know, few days to few weeks. Doesn't it seem like the tide, I mean, is this what Buffett talks about when he says, you know, when the tide goes out, you really see who's swimming naked, Jeff? I mean, it seems like every single week now, there's just some huge major blow up that's happening in the markets. Yeah, this is what he's talking about. So more on that. And I guess to continue on from our conversation about Meta last week, um, uh, they had announced that they are laying off more than 11,000 employees, which I believe is like somewhat like 10 to 13% of their workforce. Uh, Stripe is laying off 14% of their workforce, Salesforce, Redfin. It seems like the list goes on and on currently in the tech world. And I'm just kind of curious to hear your thoughts on how will these layoffs affect the job market, um, uh, you know, uh, the talent market, uh, salary expenses for companies, especially when so much of this year has been, you know, talking about like wage inflation. I'm just kind of curious to hear your thoughts on how this typically works it, its way through the system. I'm not sure it will affect it much. This is um, something we thought about before that or talked about a little bit before that I don't think that people, for instance, with college degrees, computer programmers, um, take jobs that are the kinds of jobs that we have um, a, a really tight labor force in. And so I think that uh, you can sometimes have like an overqualified workforce. Um, that's a problem. You, you get into this um, distinction where you can't move between um, different kinds of labor that you need. Uh, I think that's become more of an issue over time. So um, we, a while back, I mean, it might've been a year or so ago, we talked about it and I said, like, I think that it would be, you know, the economy that you're in, if you, you know, don't have a high school diploma or whatever, male don't have a high school diploma, more rural place, whatever, um, that you're going to do better um, relatively than you're used to. And if you're have a college degree working tech things in, you know, San Francisco and stuff, you're going to do worse than in the past. Um, and that's just because of the supply of that, those different um, sorts of labor versus what we needed. And this kind of labor was oversupplied. So do you think a lot of this will be insulated to the tech industry and like Silicon Valley in general? Yeah. I mean, it seems like this is much like 2000, 2001 tech crash. Correct. Yes. I think that that's the issue. We, we talked about the, I mentioned incestuousness and all that um, between companies, but uh, same thing with the labor. Um, I think that it's, it's somewhat insular. So I don't know that it would, um, you might have high levels of unemployment um, slack in um, these sorts with these sorts of companies at the same time that you have like no unemployment for people in oil field services or something, you know, I don't think that one's going to affect the other much. And I think that you get deceived by that when you look at the overall um, levels of thing. I mean, we talked about that with the unemployment rate where we say, you know, unemployment rates three and a half percent or whatever. That's the average across everything. That means that you're, it's way lower than that in some industries in some areas of the country. And it means it's higher than that in others, but that's why you can't run an unemployment rate so close to um, being way too low because it means in some parts of the country, some industries, it's um, impossibly low, right? Because they're, half of the, the things probably are above the 
average that you're seeing and half are below. Uh-huh. Well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see how it is as it works its way through the system. I mean, there's been a lot of talks this year, obviously, of the inverted yield curve and where we currently stand. I'm kind of curious. I mean, how are you thinking about financial stocks uh, where we currently sit right here? I mean, is this going to be one of the most challenging environments for bank stocks in particular where we currently sit? with the yield curve inversion it, it depends on what kind of thing that they're doing first a bank like frost or something it's not a problem um but for banks that do a lot of mortgage stuff um it's a problem so it depends on how long it lasts and if it looks like other times that this kind of thing has happened obviously we talked about three month tenure that's inverted and you know historically that's pretty much perfect um, predictor of a recession it's a question of whether it's a recession a few months after it inverts or a year and a half after it inverts, but it yeah, it's pretty much perfect um, indicator historically. Why do you think it is perfect? I mean, like if you think about it, like logically, what it means. I mean, is it really just because everything just starts to slow down, and um, you know, ultimately, sort of the second and third order effects of these major slowdowns, like in real estate, in lending, in money tightening. Uh, those are just typically the things that precede a recession. Why do you think it's a perfect indicator? Well, so from like a theoretical perspective, there should be a rate of time preference in terms of people should um, uh, people should not be willing to lend at you know zero percent, and and so um, you would expect the that that's sort of something that we've that's kind of the idea that we've talked about before is like that's theoretically true. But you've had things where that it, you've had um, central banks in some parts of the world that have kept things at negative rates and all that. That's obviously government policy that's driving that same sort of idea here. We take the same sort of idea in terms of how theoretical this is. But there, I can't really think historically why anyone without government intervention, without central bank intervention, would want to um, would want to accept a um lower rate for uh something that has 10 years till maturity versus something that has three months so why would they do that they would do that because they expect future rates to be lower than current rates and you know if they expect future rates to be lower than current rates and they expect a recession basically um why else would rates come down now there is a theory right i mean like so there's something that's not happened historically but is a legitimate theoretical idea which is well they could just believe inflation is going to come down right these are nominal rates so if you just believe that inflation is really high right now and it's going to be really low in the future um that could explain an inversion so that would be the argument that's that you could make that that may be the reason why um basically what it means is that money is too tight though you know it's it's tighter now in the moment then it should be on average in the future. That's what it's telling you if you have uh, a higher three-month rate than you have a 10-year rate. How do you think all of this recession talk and layoffs that are going on currently, how do you think that will affect entertainment stocks? Did you have a chance to take a look at Disney? Um, you know, their most recent quarterly earnings, I think they reported, was it yesterday? Uh, then you could look at like SeaWorld and then Cinemark. I mean, obviously we spent a lot of time thinking about entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, why is it that like attraction businesses or entertainment has 
historically been pretty recession resistant. Right. So it's been pretty recession resistant. Uh, well, it depends. Disney, like their major theme parks, uh, is not very recession resistant versus, say, something that's a local park. It's the same difference between, like, say, Las Vegas and some local casino. The small local casino is more recession resistant than, than um, the Vegas casino um, because it's not drawing from all around the world. So people can trade down into these things. Generally, stuff like um, admissions to SeaWorld or Six Flags or uh, a movie theater, uh, a movie ticket, people complain about them. They say, look how expensive it is to go to the movies and everything. It's actually pretty cheap versus alternatives of how you could spend your time and your money. Um, so that's a big part of why they are pretty resistant to recession. Um, other possible reasons are, you know, less clear and a little more uh, speculative as to why like certain things, entertainment, vice things, stuff like that seem to be more re resistant to recession. Um, could be people um, uh, prioritize those things more than other sorts of stuff. We, we've talked about like, um, I think I've talked about, you know, in a recession or something like that, you're going to, people will stop eating healthy. They'll stop going to the gym. They'll stop, you know, that's the things they actually cut. The things they don't cut are like entertainment, um, which may be different than what people tell you they're going to do. But in reality, they, they don't usually stop drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, um, smoking other things now. Um, and uh, all of that, they do cut back on some other things. So I, th I think short-term um, uh, instant gratification stuff, uh, they, they tend not to cut back as much on. And many of these things are pretty reasonably priced versus um, other sorts of expenses that you might have. So they're things that people don't put off. Um, but things like Disney's parks, they do. So, you know, Disney World and um, Disneyland to some extent, Disney World more so, um, th those things do decline in a recession and they decline a lot more than, say, Six Flags in um, uh, Texas or whatever if it only draws from the Texas area. The smaller your um, market area that you're drawing from, uh, the, the less affected you are in a recession. The larger the area, the more of a destination you are, the more affected you are. So basically what you're saying is regional businesses where they're just pulling from maybe a hundred miles around the park, they're more uh, insulated from a recession compared to like a Disney park where you have to hop on an airplane, book a hotel and fly over to, you know, the destination to uh, enjoy the amenities that's the difference between the two right but i do want to stress that i'm just talking about this from the perspective of demand um it doesn't mean their earnings will be okay or will be better or whatever because um sometimes when we talk about a recession it's easy to forget this we're talking about something now that's very different than say 2008 or or some other periods um it, it can also be that they have increasing costs or costs that increase more relative to some decrease in demand. So in the past, it might be, oh, well, there's a very small decrease in demand, but there's like no increase in costs. So it wasn't really too bad. If your costs are increasing pretty quickly, um, at the same time, there's much of any decrease in demand. And this is what we've seen in tech, right? Um, then things can be bad from an earnings perspective, even though from a revenue perspective, they don't look that bad. And that would happen, you know, in a um, 
even a mild recession if it was accompanied by pretty high inflation, like really tight labor markets for for the um, sorts of you know attractions and things that you're running. So it's totally possible that you can have bad results, especially if you have meaningful inflation and stuff, um, because all of them are affected somewhat. You know, it's not it's not like you benefit from a recession. Um, overall, people spend less on entertainment. Some of it though goes to you as opposed to other things that um, it would go to otherwise, as there's some trading down and all of that. But uh, there is still a decrease in, in like real terms. Um, and in really bad recessions, we have evidence that it um, is very meaningful. So like um, the best examples we have would be, so these are mostly done like nationally and I think that obscures some things. So they'll, they'll do like, you know, national, how much did it drop for these industries? But we can see, for instance, that in the early 1990s, there was a um, real estate bust in California and that clearly affected um, Disneyland. Disneyland draws a lot more locally than Disney World does. Likewise, there was a um, crash in oil-related stuff in Texas. And the Texas parks, you can see clearly a big decline for them. At the same time, in those same recessions, you don't see as big a decline in other parts of the country for Florida and things like that. But Florida didn't have a particularly bad recession in that period. So um, they're really comparing off of national things. And that, I think, obscures it a little bit. If you have something that's as bad as those periods were, um, in your local area, then, then you'll have a real problem. Why do you like the attraction industry so much? Um, is it because of, you know, it's predictable? Is it because the industry has been around for so long? Is it because of the economics of the industry? Why do you spend a lot of time, uh, you know, focusing on this, this industry? Well, I think it's the same as like when we talk about supermarkets, I don't know that I particularly like it or don't like it. I guess I like it more, same as with supermarkets and other people do in the sense that I think it is more predictable. And if it gets cheap enough, then you can be pretty sure that you have a good deal. Um, it's not that it's a particularly great business. Um, it can be, uh, you know, some of them can be pretty good businesses. Uh, over time, their their turns are okay. Once they're, you know, the history of, of attractions in the U.S. of once they're money-making, um, is okay. The the reinvestment on it has like an okay return on capital. As long as they use some debt, it does generate value over time without any debt being used. If it was 100% equity, it, it barely creates shareholder value, I'd say. Um, and that doesn't take into account that some of them fail in the beginning. Now, once you're established on a particular location, you tend to have, I'd say the the returns on capital are are okay and they're fairly easy to leverage up and so you do create shareholder value uh, where shareholder value is destroyed usually is only in like trying to move into new places or acquire things or something that um is different than just reinvesting in existing attractions um so i i think that when they're cheap it's fairly easy to tell that they are cheap because they're fairly durable but that is similar to other things we've talked about like supermarkets and car dealers, which I think people um, have the impression that I think they're better businesses than they are. I, I don't. I think they're more that I think that the fact that they're incredibly durable um, means that when they are value stocks, they are more attractive value stocks than some other um, uh, that they're more attractive as stocks 
you know, so if when we have them at the same EV to EBITDA, the same P, the same price to book, whatever, of certain other companies, um, I think that some industries that we've talked about, like attractions, uh, they are more uh, durable. They're very durable. Uh, and so that means that as long as you're not paying too high a price, you know, um, you can know for sure that you're getting a good value, I guess. So I just think that as a value stock, when they get to those prices, you have a higher degree of confidence in some industries. And this is one of those industries, but it's not alone. Uh, you know, supermarkets, car dealers, um, We've talked about things like aggregates and stuff like that. Th those all share the, those same features. So as compared to some product or technology thing or something, it's a much safer thing to bet on um, when it's cheap. I'm trying to see. I was looking at a slide uh, from Cedar Fair. And um, hmm, they didn't have what, can't find one that I thought. I thought they said they had a study on successful regional theme parks and um, how hard it is to get a regional theme park successful, but basically how resilient it can be once you have a successful theme park, um, you know, up and running for Cedar Fair. They had that in their investor presentation. Yeah. The only thing I caution with that is, you know, the, um, the problem with all of these is the same as we say in a lot of industries, um, the actual like returns that they get on their reinvestment usually aren't that um, amazing. Uh, they're, they're okay, but the best returns you're going to see is when they kind of underinvest in them um, and they get, a, and they get good results without putting in a lot more money to grow it. It's, it's fairly hard to put in a lot more capital to grow it because they're pretty capital intensive. Um, and we talked a little bit about that with like Six Flags. I had said, you know, I think Six Flags underinvested in some things for a while, but that obviously looks good on a, a financial performance basis in those years when they did do that, because mm -hmm. you can afford to put almost no money into it. And for a few years, when you do that, you don't see big drops in attendance or anything like that. Um, but it's it's not as easy as some people might think to like put a hundred million dollars in it and drive a big um good return in the in the business from doing that so it is hard to drive much in the way of additional attendance and um and per capita spending so the results are good but they're not unbelievable that way and so i'd be careful about paying very high like price to book and and all those sorts of things um you don't i, I just think you want to look at it in terms of what it's actually throwing off today and valuing it that way, which means you need a pretty reasonable price versus, uh, you know, EV to EBITDA. We talk about price to free cash flow, those sorts of things. Um, it has to be pretty reasonable uh, and, and not based on the idea of a lot of growth. You can see that here with, with um, Cedar Fair, right? So last 10 years, you know, they peaked their revenues in, I guess, 2019. So this is um, not giving them enough credit, but their revenue really didn't grow much more than inflation over that 10 year period. Um, so the returns obviously were okay because they didn't really grow assets that much or any of that. Cedar fair basically pays everything out. Do you think the play is for these companies then is to like, just take cash out and either buy back stock or uh, pay dividends. I mean, when you say 
a lot of the returns that the companies get from reinvesting into their business normally aren't that good. Um, you know, then like most companies, it's like, what do you do with that cash? Right. Do you think they should just return to shareholders via buyback or dividends? No, I think it's fine to reinvest. I just think that you need to use debt to do it. So you need to borrow long-term to do it with debt and you need to mix debt and equity. I think it's like a railroad or utility or any of those things. I, I, probably wouldn't want to invest in a railroad or utility that only use shareholder money. Then you need to use debt to do it. Um, so I, I don't, I think it's fine to reinvest in it. I think the returns are there in many cases. Um, and the, the returns, the acquisitions, um, unless they're very well timed, often don't have returns that are all that much better than simply reinvesting in what you already own. And it's tempting to do the acquisitions, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, these aren't bad results from, from um, Cedar Fair over that time because they're able to keep down the growth in the assets. And, um, the you know, it's not a gr very fast-growing business there, as you can see. But if you don't grow assets at all, then, you know, you can get good returns. What are your thoughts on, like, um, SeaWorld compared to, um, you know, Disney or... Uh, Cedar Fair. I don't think SeaWorld's that cheap. Yeah, if you're looking at it, EBITDA sales 3.5 times uh, PE three or 13.6, which I mean, uh, for all these companies, it's kind of skewed really since 2019. EBITDA free cash flow 15.6, but I was looking at their per capita spending, total revenue per capita 77, and admission per capita or in park per capita spending. I mean, it's pretty damn high. And if you look at most theme park companies, they're up, you know, certainly over 2020, 2021, but, you know, also up above 2019. I wonder if coming out of the pandemic, you know, they were sort of forced SeaWorld, Cedar Fair, Six Flags, Disney theme parks, uh, to like most companies to really hone in and bunker down and, uh, you know, remove excess waste and improve uh you know like the economics of their business per person that visits their parks yeah i mean their attendance isn't down at least so that's a good thing i think for most of them the problem the i think it's and movie theaters the same thing i think it's somewhat exaggerated the increase in per capita because the amount of people that you can serve has declined. And if you decrease the amount of people that you're serving, then your per capita numbers will go up because you're eliminating more marginal um, people. So you have your super fans, basically, are the people who are coming are, are accounting for a greater percentage. Um, and I think it's definitely true when we talk about most of these. Um, it's certainly true with movies, right? So um, I think... Permanently, it will be higher, but I don't think that, you know, if they get back to some of these companies, when we movies are the best example because their attendance is way down. If they got back to the attendance they had before, I think they would have lower per capita numbers uh, on the higher attendance level. I think per capita would be high compared to what it was before the pandemic, but it wouldn't be as high as it is at their moment where they have the lowest attendance. With very low attendance, they've had very high per capita because they have the most diehard um, movie going people that are the ones showing up. Cool. Well, uh, in today's podcast, I wanted to uh, spend some more time going through a screener uh, that I uh, 
screen for some stocks. And uh, last week, people said that they really enjoyed uh, us going through it and like that we are going to do this basically every podcast. Uh, but what I will do is I will just pick different screeners, always have some sort of valuation on it, some sort of, uh, you know, qualityness to it. And then we'll just pull and go through it on quick FS. Uh, so what we used for today's screener is market capitalization, 300 million to 2 billion. Uh, we have our own a volume study on it, uh, which helps find these less traded stocks, uh, positive EPS over a certain amount of years, something with the Z score, something with the F score, and then a return on equity uh, greater than 10%. And I believe a price to earnings of less than 15 is what I did. I ran the screen, it spit it out, and we have about 91 companies. And just looking through some of these, um, these are all names that people would recognize, uh, have some familiarity with, which I think would be good uh, to go over on the podcast. And um, we'll just start to work our way through it and see what we come up with. And we're using like I said, quick what, FS for this. Quick FS. Yeah, we're using yeah. quick FS, correct. And again, I want to make the podcast, Jeff and I want to make the podcast as timely as possible. Um, you know, we have our time list content, but we also want to talk about stocks, right? And uh, currently with the market being down 21%, I think it's good to spend a lot of time running different screens, looking at as many different stocks, turning over as many different rocks as possible and seeing what we could come up with for everybody. Um, we'll never run this screen in the area of the market that we focused on just because we don't want to compete with ourselves. So uh, first one, uh, RGR, Storm, Ruger, and Company, Inc. Guns. This is a firearm company. That's yeah. correct. Together yeah. with subsidiaries, designs, manufactures, and sells firearms under the Ruger name and trademark in the United States. Beta 0 0.40, share turnover 183%. These get pretty volatile at times when things uh, politically or socially or, you know, stuff that's going on in the news uh, hits the fan. Uh, price earnings currently about eight times. EBIT sales 1.2. 10-year median margins on EBIT 18.7%. Uh, 10-year CAGR in revenue 8.3% going from $492 million in 2012 to $731 million in 2021. Uh, high growth in assets, 8% compounded over 10 years. Return on equity, median returns, 31%. Um, even free cash flow about eight times. If you look at the return on invested capital, you could see, you know, there are some years where they make a ton uh, north of, you know, 50% in 2012 was 60% and in 2013 it was 81%. Mm -hmm. And then there are some years where they, you know, 2004, 2005 is basically zero to 4%. And in 2019 it was 10%, but basically all over the place. Um, any thoughts on uh, RGR, Jeff? So it has volatile gross margins. As you can see, the return on equity and gross margin are similar. So the changes in the gross margin are pretty reflective of what you'll have changes in like return on equity, um, which means that they must have fairly high, and you can see this by looking at the numbers, but they have to have fairly high um, turns. They have to actually have a lot of sales relative to their assets for that to be true. Um, usually we like businesses where the gross margin is more um, stable. I would say this has to do with volume. 
So this is probably a business that the gross margin depends a lot on the total volume of demand. Uh, we can tell what that is. And so that is driven by something. I don't know what we want to speculate on what that is. Uh, obviously, I think the market and looking at the return on invested capital comes up with theories that it has to do with political um, cycles where uh, for some reason demand is pulled forward um, because of you know one party or one um, president or whatever winning or being predicted that they will win or they might win or they might do something or they won't do something. And then uh, that may shift demand that would otherwise be pretty steady um, into certain periods. Uh, so it makes it more lumpy. All right. And that seems to be what we're seeing here. So if you're doing something like what this company is doing, a uh, car company would be the same thing, for instance. Um, auto parts would be very much this would be the case. Um, chemical company would be the same thing. The gross margin may be driven mainly by the total amount of volume of the same sort of thing that you're doing in a particular year. And you may have particularly bad gross margins in years in which um, you have low production levels because you have high overhead cost absorption. That's almost certainly what's going on here. So uh, we see this with semiconductor things, for instance. So their margin, their gross margins are very unstable because there isn't a stable level of cost per unit. The level of the cost per unit depends a lot on how many units you're making. So if they make an incredible number of units in a particular year, their costs are lower and um, demand may be pretty high. Their margins look very wide and it looks like a really good business. And then in years in which there's low production, it would reverse that. Um, I would be really cautious about buying at the wrong time in the cycle, right? So um, obviously on like price to book, versus the long-term return on equity average and you know it looks okay you know um i've certainly had lots of people not a lot i have had a few people email me asking about this company uh, i don't have a strong opinion enough opinion about it because i don't feel like i have an idea of what normal level of um demand would be do you think it's hard to come up with a normal level uh for this company just because it could be so all over the place with you know political uncertainty or social unrest and things that make these companies go boom and bust. I mean, I remember in uh, 2020, I was actually in a gun store in Texas with somebody and uh, the person that was purchasing a gun was talking to the store owner. And of course there was a long line because everyone was worried about COVID and the store owner was kind of laughing. He's like, yeah, I'm going to buy all of these guns back for like 40 to 50% less over the next few months, uh, just because that's how, you know, boom and bust these things can be for people. Yeah. And I think the issue with that, when you look at this company's results, are if we look at like, let's say 2019 to 2021, okay? So the increase is like 320 million in sales, but I believe the gross profit increase is 180 million. So that means that the, the marginal contribution to profitability is very high. So it's really the issue of how volatile the gross margin is in that cycle that you're talking about. And um, that's what concerns me. And that's what you can see in the early 2000s. Now, the company is probably a very different company. Uh, this is basically a magic formula type stock. So, you know, uh, it's my usual sort of thing about that. If you're buying, if you're not buying at a bad time and it's a durable company, this is going to work out. But my problem with the magic formula is always it doesn't really express an opinion about that. And so you have to judge that for yourself. Is this a very durable business? Probably. 
Um, it's probably pretty durable in terms of its competitive position and all that. It's not something where a lot of new people enter and all and everything. Um, is it, do you have a good idea of what normal demand looks like though? Um, so it, it's basically a magic formula type stock. If you, if you buy a ton of these, um, and you don't do too bad with them in terms of always picking the wrong timing, I think on average they'll work out. Okay. But I, I think it's hard for me to know what the normal level of profitability is here. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's go on to the next one. Heartland Express Inc. HTLD. Heartland Express Inc. Market cap 1.1 billion. EV 975 million. Industry, road, and rail. Uh, together with its subsidiaries, operates as a short to medium haul truckload carrier in the United States and Canada. Interesting, was founded in 1978 and is headquartered in North Liberty, Iowa. Beta 0 0.54, uh, current PE eight times, EBITDA sales 1.5 times, uh, 10 year median margins on EBIT 11%, 10 year CAGR in revenue 1.4%, uh, 10 year CAGR in free cash flow. 10%. Uh, if you look at gross margins, uh, they've ranged from 20% to it looks like uh, lowest was in 2017 at 14%. Um, hmm. What are your thoughts on this company, Jeff? Anything that sticks out to you? Yeah. I mean, again, it looks fine on the price to book versus like revenue uh, versus like the long-term return on equity. Those things look fine. Um, the things you mentioned about earnings or free cash flow look okay relative to things like revenue. Um, some things don't necessarily, and we'd have to look at the balance sheet to see that, but you'll notice that, for instance, um, over a long period of time, revenue has not grown that strongly versus assets, but that may be that there's some sort of intangible assets that are causing that problem. On the other hand, free cash flow conversion has been extremely high. So, for instance, free cash flow, median free cash flow margin is actually above the EBIT margin and it's pretty close to the pre-tax income um, level. So they're converting a very large amount into free cash flow. But on the other hand, there seems to be something going on there with uh, very poor growth in revenue over time. Um, so I'm not sure what that's about. You also see that return on invested capital has been trailing somewhat lower, almost, you know, a very slight trend, but it's a very consistent trend for the last 10 years or so. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about return on equity and price to book numbers, what you're basically doing in your head is you're taking their 10-year median return of return on equity of 13.1% in your head, you know, take 13% and you're dividing it by the current price to book and, you know, which gives you 9.35% just as kind of like a going forward return. Is that mm -hmm. how you're thinking about it for everyone listening? Yeah. Got it. Do you want me to pull up the balance sheet so we could take a look sure. at it? Um, yeah, so you have a large growth in, in goodwill over time. So they acquired stuff. And so they seem to have acquired stuff that was not helpful over time in growing revenue, or maybe it was helpful, but it, it only offset what would have been otherwise revenue declines for them. It's not a PP&E issue, actually. If you look, the PP&E um, has not grown too much, um, it, you know, it, it's for in the last 10 years or at least the last eight years or so. So there was some acquisition stuff, which I think accounted for much of the assets um, change that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. Let's look at the cash flow statement because of the free cash flow conversion. Um, mm -hmm. It's yeah. very, it's very, some stock. Yeah, so it's very lumpy. 
um, because the CapEx is lumpy, but the cash flow from operations is not. The cash flow from operations is pretty predictable because the depreciation is very predictable. Um, and the net income is fairly predictable, actually quite predictable for the last, like, uh, except for this most recent year, it was very predictable for a long time. Um, so the combination of those things and the fact they don't really have working capital, obviously. I mean, there's slight changes in it, but it's not big. Um, means that it's really just the level of CapEx. Uh, however, you can see the CapEx is very, very lumpy. So trying to predict the level of um, free cash flow is hard. And I wouldn't use any one year's free cash flow. For instance, it would show huge free cash flow in 2021. And it would show much more modest cash flow in 2020. But I don't think 2020 was actually in any way a worse year than 2021. Um, I just think they spent more on CapEx. So uh, I would, you know, use like a three-year average cash flow from operations or something, probably. Um, in this case, there may not be much difference between using EBITDA or cash flow from operations because obviously they, they don't have a lot of working capital. Um, so it's much more of a straight up um, net income and depreciation. So if you were going to use EBITDA for business, EBITDA, EBITDA would be okay for this business. This is the kind of thing where it'd be okay. Do you think you'd ever be interested in a company like Heartland? Probably not. And why is that? The industry that it's in. Mm. Yeah. Got it. Cool. We can go on out. Let's go to a name that I recognize. H-I-B-B. Hibbit Sports Inc. Market cap, $788 million. EV, $759 million. Specialty retail. Um, valuation, seven times PE. EV to sales point five times, 10-year media margins on EBIT, 11%. Um, this is like a small format Dix, if people know Dix. Um, this is like that, except small format in more rural places, in places where you want to put a Dix Sporting Goods. But it's basically the same sort of idea, just really small in strip malls. Um, yeah, incredibly volatile stock. Um, it's just a retail thing. I would avoid those things. I, I think there is some built-in demand for it that isn't stuff that you would buy online, um, that you would buy in person, but it's very tricky. It's like Bed Bath & Beyond or Best Buy or any of these that get into risks about online versus will people keep buying it in person. You know, I don't know enough of that. It's certainly, again, looks really attractive on like a um, sort of magic formula type thing. Uh, it's been cheap in the past a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. the monarch cement company is the business that you've written about this only has financials going to 2017 so on quick fs think, uh, yeah so on quick we can, FS, yeah. We, i would skip it because quick fs isn't updated but you the company does keep putting out financials you can find in their yeah. um, disclosures yeah so you just have to calculate the information for yourself you can't do it otherwise mm -hmm. they had a pretty good year or they've had a good run i should say right so since uh, you know, 2020, um, the stock was, you know, you could pick your lowest point around 50 bucks. And now it currently trades at $99 and it had a peak earlier this year of about $130 per share. Mm -hmm. They do have some, uh, a portfolio of stocks, which includes things in materials, things, but also could be like home building things could be, um, uh, oil and gas things. Um, so sometimes they do have reported like changes to net income that's based on that. And that doesn't always go well when the stock market's down. So that could obscure things a little bit. But so everyone, I mean, that's unusual. We don't talk about many stocks that have like an equity portfolio, sort of like Berkshire Hathaway does. This company does. They don't disclose a lot about it, though. Zoomies Inc. So another uh, retailer, um, a current market cap, 
37 million, EV 271 million, specialty retailer. Um, uh, does this have how many stores they have? They have the company operated 738 stores, uh, including 602 in the United States, 52 in Canada, 67 in Europe, and 17 in Australia. Um, I think anyone that has been to the mall, the mall knows uh, it's a knows sk- skating yeah, surf. Zoomies. Yeah, yeah, it's basically yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I would not look at it. I can't evaluate something like that, you know. Um, Too much uh, ties to malls? No, I mean, I'm sure when I started writing Gannon Investing, I think I mentioned, you know, at the time that, that um, so, you know, 15 years ago or, or whatever, a little bit longer than 17 years ago, um, I think we mentioned one of the first things I wrote about was American Eagle. I mentioned that at the time, you know, like PacSun would have been a, a major um, stock. You know, this is in that category. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's a few hundred million dollar market cap now. Um, some of those go on to be a couple billion if the concept does well, and some of those go to zero. I can't evaluate things in that category. Um, as I think they said in their description, uh, it's basically apparel sales and accessories and, and shoes um, to young men, and it's mall based. So uh, it, it's not super predictable the demand and I don't have any insight into um, their competitive position and all that over time. It's, you know, trendy and changing all the time. And, you know, we talk about buckle on this podcast, you know, people always ask about that, you know, same sort of thing. I I don't really do retailers. I don't do specialty retail. Yeah. We've talked a lot about buckle on the podcast. Okay. Let's go to ULH. Let's see what we could come up with. Universal Logistics Holdings, Inc., it is a market cap of nine hundred forty-one million. Another one that's in road and rail EV one point three billion. Uh, Universal Logistics Holdings Inc. provides transportation and logistic solutions in the United States, Mexico, Canada, and Colombia. Uh, it offers truckload services, which include dry van, flatbed, heavy haul, and refrigerated operations, domestic and international freight forwarding and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, it was founded in 1932 in, uh, it's headquartered in Warren, Michigan. Uh, current EV to sales 0.6, 10-year median margins on EBIT 5.8. That is quite the volatile return invested capital chart on QuickFS. Price to earnings, six times. Um, 10-year CAGR in revenue, 6%. A 10-year CAGR in assets, about 14%. Yeah. So another one, Jeff. This one's a little different in that free cash flow is bad. So long-term free cash flow is very slim. And uh, leverage is much higher. So we just just talked about Heartland. This has similarities to Heartland. But I would stress the differences is uh, cash flow uh, generation relative to like earnings and stuff is much, much lower here. And um, assets relative to things like equity and other things, just like the total amount of debt relative to the market value, you know, market cap and all that is high. Um, so this is a much more indebted company, much more leveraged company overall. There's other ways that we can see that on the combination of operating leverage and financial leverage, it's high. Um, and then you don't have as much coming in the form of cash. Overall, probably a weaker credit than Heartland. Um if it works out, it probably pays off better, right? When you have a lot of leverage in both the 
operating in the financial, um, when you get it right, it has a higher payoff. Um, but it just, you know, so there are some differences here between the two of them, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, similar thing in terms of the growth in the um, intangibles too, like the, where we're seeing the strong asset growth, it's really in uh, intangibles. It's not, it's like the acquired stuff that caused that. We see again, you know, in the second half, at least of their growth, they do have growth in PP&E. It's a lot higher than the growth in PP&E was for Heartland, but a lot of this is also goodwill and other intangible asset growth. Um, so acquisitions. What are your sort of guardrails from like a, a debt to equity perspective? Uh, well, let's look at cash flow from operations first. So let's go to the cash flow statement to see. The first thing we want to make sure is that cash flow from operations are always positive. Here it is always positive. Um, it sometimes has high uh, CapEx, but even then, usually it can cover the CapEx. In fact, it can always cover the CapEx if we put aside acquisitions. Um, so it's okay from that perspective. It doesn't look very dangerous that way. If, let's look at the balance sheet. Um, let's see. So obviously, total liabilities are very high versus total current assets. And then can we look on a quarterly basis just to be sure? But the other thing is the composition of, of current assets. So current assets is almost entirely receivables here. Um, and then current assets are also pretty low versus total liabilities. So it's constantly at funding from the cash flow from operations, which as we saw is always um, positive. So that's what they're doing. But on the actual balance sheet basis, they're running things pretty um tight so they're they need that constant cash flow from operations which they have and there's no history of not being able to produce cash flow from operations from what they do uh but in us on a static basis no it's a it's a weak balance sheet you know you think when buffett would look at the value line this is exactly what he would do he would spend about a couple minutes on each stock look at the numbers just like we're doing here and either you know pass or dive in more yeah um, you know, this is a screen. So this is unfortunately what happens with screens. What tends to happen is that, I, you know, if we just, I would say on the, uh, quantitatively, I'd say quantitatively, it looks fine. Qualitatively, I, it has issues with me of why I wouldn't like it. Cause what we did is we mm -hmm. screened for the quantitative aspect of it. When you flip through a value line or something, you go, Oh, this is too expensive. I like the business a lot here. We're going to have time after time where I'm going to say, uh, uh, here are my concerns about the business. Obviously, all of these that we're going to hit the, you know, the prices are going to be mo most all of them. The prices are going to be pretty reasonable, um, but there's going to be often some qualitative thing, mainly just what industry they're in. Uh huh. Well, in the future, I could take the valuation thing off. Like I said, I'll I'm just going to do just a bunch of different iterations every single week and just pull a bunch of different stocks. So in the future, I could uh, take that uh valuation aspect out of it and we could just you know maybe come at it more from a qualitative perspective yeah sure um, i mean but these are also you have good prices on them so mm -hmm. what do you think's better where do you think it's better to spend your time doing what we're doing now or the alternative um i mean i i've done both i think that if things are incredibly cheap it's fine but what i said about the entertainment stuff i think is something to keep in mind i would buy cheap entertainment companies I wouldn't buy cheap. Um, I, there's not really a price at which I'd say Zoomies is so cheap I've got to buy it. But there is a price at which mm -hmm. I'd say Six Flags is so cheap I'm going to buy it. Because I think there's a predictability to Six Flags. You know, if the financial 
strength is there, if whatever, um, that I'm not sure if there is with Zoomies. You know, you have to ask with each of these, what really is this company? What's the durable part of it? And what is that really consist of, right? Like, um, you know, um, we talked about gun manufacturer. Okay, so they have certain brands and things that people are familiar with. Um, it's not an industry that a lot of new people are going to enter. There's a lot of history there. You can kind of understand what there is there, and that of the things we've talked about is the one that um, has the most substance to it as a company. Mm-hmm. With some of these others, okay, well, if you had as many trucks as they have, if you have, I mean, what exactly is it that they are that um, that same collection of assets or whatever you know from someone else wouldn't be? Um, you know, what is the actual lasting thing about their organization? You know, it can be mindshare, it can be the, organi- the organization in terms of, um, um, you know, brand names, and it could be the actual locations of things. Um, it, it could be whatever, but what is that? And in most all these cases, we're talking about paying a premium to book, right? Mm-hmm. Usually, a, you know, sometimes a small premium to book, but, but you know, if you're a trucking fleet thing, you know, why am I paying a 50% premium to book? If you look at like the magic formula type thing, you just think of every business as a business. I, you know, I, yeah, if you buy it at the right time, it might work out. You think about the PE and everything, but you know, I, I'm willing to pay a premium to book for a collection of amusement parks, probably in a way I'm not for a, a, a trucking fleet. I think there's something unique there in, in one case that probably isn't there in the other. Um, with something like Zoomies, it, there may be something very unique there and, and lasting and everything. I just don't know. It, it probably will produce either really great returns on capital or will lose a lot of money at some point. It's probably not going to be an in-between thing. It's not going to start earning a 10% return equity year after year. That's never going to happen. It's going to earn really great returns and or at some point it, it will lose a lot of money. Um, it, you know, it won't be consistently making a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have PRIM, uh, Primoris Services Corporation, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's in the construction and engineering industry. Uh, it's a specialty contractor company, provides a range of construction, fabrica- fabrication, maintenance, replacement, and engineering services in the United States and Canada. I mean, just from what you basically said, I, I completely understand. You probably, uh, a lot of these companies, no matter how cheap they are, I don't know if you'd actually be interested in them headquartered in Dallas, Texas. Yeah. You can look at their balance sheet. Generally the problem with these is they produce no free cash flow, really. So Mm -hmm. unless you buy them at a really good price versus the balance sheet, like on a liquidation basis, there's not a lot to go on. There's some risk sometimes in these, depending on what kinds of things they're doing that they could actually have meaningful losses if they um, get jobs where they end up overrunning what they were planning to do. Um, So what's our current total, total current assets? Uh, 1.3 billion. And so what's total liabilities? 1.6 billion. Yeah, I would not buy it. I think for a construction company, I definitely want current assets to exceed total liabilities or else I'm probably not looking at it. And I'd be most interested in ones that are basically net nets. But um, it is a little risky to buy any construction company where, um, I mean, some of this is deferred revenue. So it's not a huge item here, but it's a few hundred million. So um, I'm not saying there's anything wrong here. I just... I for a construction company probably I really want current assets to exceed total liabilities here. Here you have like goodwill and PP and E. Um, those are not things I'm willing to pay for for a company like this. 
Um, so I really need it in the form of cash and receivables. And, and there are some, I've seen them before on screens and stuff where they are okay on that. Usually though, the ones I've found that are good on a current assets minus total liabilities basis, in fact, cheap, have a problems that are known like they're going to lose money in future periods because they, they've committed to jobs that they're going to lose, that they've realized they're going to lose some money on and those jobs aren't run off yet. So you're kind of betting on how their bidding and stuff will be in the future if they'll clean up and get more disciplined about that. But the good news on those is that you often have like, you're paying a very low price relative to the liquidation value of the business basically. So it's kind of like an insurance company if it decided I'm going into runoff you get a good price. It's just that you're kind of counting on, it's known that they've had problems in the past sometimes. Um, I would definitely want with construction companies really strong current asset position versus total liabilities. I would buy them on the balance sheet. I really don't think I would buy them on um, and like an earnings basis or something like that probably. Yeah. Uh, let's look on CSV. Carriage services Inc. Diversified Consumer That's services. not what it is. It's not what it is. It's a funeral home operator. That's just okay, a euphemism so for some reason. <laughs> yeah, this is a pretty well-known one. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's a pretty known there one. There you go. I mean, kind of kind of consumer services, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, diversified consumer through, services, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. operates through two segments, funeral home operations and cemetery operations. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see. As of December 31st, 2021, it operated 170 funeral homes in 26 states and 31 cemeteries in 11 states. It was founded in 1991 and is based in Houston, Texas. Beta, less than 1.98. Uh, uh, share turnover is quite high. Uh, let's turn this quarterly to annual. Uh, valuation ratios, EV to sales, 2.6. Uh, Ten-year median margins on EBIT, 19%. Uh, um, uh, valuation from a price-to-earnings perspective, eight times. EBIT-free cash flow, 27 times. If you look at uh, return on equity, 10-year median returns, about 11%. So on a price-to-book basis of what Jeff was, uh, or what Jeff uses and what we were talking about earlier on, mm -hmm. is if you take about 11% and you divide it by price-to-book of three, well, you're thinking of like a go forward return of about 3.6%. Uh, 10 year Kager in revenue has gone uh, is 7%, going from 198 million in 2012 to 376 million in 2021. Um, about their capital structure, right? If you look at their market yeah. cap to EV, uh, these companies, all mm -hmm. of them, have a tremendous, typically a, a tremendous amount of debt. Um, and you can see right there long term yep. debt. Uh, 552 million short-term debt about 1 million and we could go to a quarterly so we get more updated but it doesn't look like it's changed yeah so uh, long-term debt 566 million and uh cash this looks like 1 million unless it's less because we are in millions let's see eight hundred twenty-one thousand dollars, jeff so a lot of these companies always run pretty uh pretty lever to the hilt yeah, that's basically like an LBO. Uh-huh. Basically. Yeah. I mean, that's that's how it's structured here. Um, so free cash flow uh into which the way it's reported in the United States and stuff is after taxes and everything. So it, it is cheap, right? So like you're getting like if you're trading at one time sales in terms of a price to sales, and your free cash flow is 13, 14% of sales, your margin 
then your free cash flow generation relative to your price is good, but it's incredibly leveraged. And so uh, that's why it's good. And they don't want to unleverage it. As you can see, they've even bought back stock recently. Um, so I, I think this is really only showing up as cheap because it's incredibly highly leveraged. Of course, what's a more predictable sort of business than the death um, care business, yeah. you know? Uh -huh. um, I, it may be declining over time, but it's the kind of thing that you could put, you know, an, an LBO type structure to it and make money from it. Um, you know, I evaluate the people involved, their strategy and all of that and decide whether you want to get to, to do this or not with the understanding that what you're doing is basically like an LBO. Um, it's like when we talk about Transdime or one of those, it's, that's the structure that they want to do and you're going to be on it permanently probably um, doing that. So, uh, you know, like if we look there, they even issued more debt. They haven't paid down the debt. You know, they've actually bought back more stock than they paid down debt in the last couple years. They did pay down a little debt before then. Um, but you can also just see it in the extremes. And like we talked about with the, the balance sheet, um, that their total current assets were like 40 million, none of which is anything, none of which is cash and their total liabilities is over a billion, um, of which a lot is long-term debt. Um, we can check cash flow from operations. I actually think this is a little too much for me. This is too much for me. Um, so their best cash flow from operations year, which I would use instead of like EBITDA, that's actual cash flow that they generated. And I'm not even taking away the fact that they use stock-based compensation. So I think this is fair. Um, was only a little better than 80 million. If we look at their net debt, um, so on the balance sheet, um, we can see the uh, long-term debt was what, 550 million? Yeah. Right? And then you have, you have no cash really. So you basically have, um, you know, there's a there's some other items in here too. I I would say you have seven times seven years worth seven times. So your your debt your net debt is basically seven times your cash flow from operations. Um, that is pretty consistent with an LBO, mm -hmm. but it's too much for me for investing in it as a public company. So it's very high level it's not what people listening to this are used to investing in a company with that level of leverage but it is per, this industry and those ratios and stuff are totally in line with what lbos look like and lbos you know don't have a bad record overall it's like a group so i'm not saying it doesn't work but i just this is a whole different kind of investment than most people are used to making. And what are they doing just acquiring other funeral homes and cemeteries they have a a good amount of goodwill, right? So of their $1.1 billion mm -hmm. asset uh, on their balance sheet, uh, about 400 million of it is goodwill. Yeah, we could look at like, um, let's look at their income statement annually. Look at their share count. Yeah, so the share count is actually, it's, it's been the same since uh, 2012. Right, but they increased it, right, and then they decreased it, or what did they do? So they've like this. Probably they've increased it for acquisitions, and then they buy yeah. back stock, mm -hmm. or whatever. That's they basically done? yeah. It was eighteen million in two thousand twelve, and then two thousand thirteen it jumped to twenty two million, and then it's really gone from eighteen million, and then 
stayed in that area. I mean, we had 18 million, 17 million, 18 million, 18 million, 18 million. So hasn't jumped around too much. Yeah, uh, we can also look at so so like cash flow from operations, operating profits, so EBIT and cash flow from operations are both around 80 million recently. Um, if we look at the overview, we can see you know the market cap and the EV get an idea. Um, they are reasonably cheap on a market cap basis. Yeah. On an enterprise value basis, they are somewhat cheap, right? So like paying for this kind of business, paying 10, 11, 12 times cash flow from operations, which is what we're talking about if it's 80 million and the EV is 950 million, um, is not that bad. And you can see that also in the EV to EBITDA. It's not that far different. I, I, I usually use cash flow from operations to get at the real cash that the business has. But this kind of business doesn't have a lot of like working capital or anything like that. So the EV to EBITDA is a pretty accurate you know, it, it's EBITDA is a pretty good proxy for actual cash flow from operations. It is a pretty good cash flow measure here. Um, it's not expensive. Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily all that cheap either, but you know, 10 times EBITDA or 10 times cash flow from operations or whatever um, is not an expensive price to pay. It is mostly, literally, you know, mostly um, debt. Mm-hmm. You know, you're using maybe two parts equity for um, three parts debt or something like that. You know, maybe 40% mix of, of equity to debt here. Um, Let's look at a chart of it. I'd be curious to see. There's been some value investors that have taken some pretty big hits on these funeral homes. Well, I mean, some of these, I don't know if carriage services specifically is mentioned in... Um, uh, one up on a Wall Street, right? But the Peter Lynch book. But he does talk about one of the, at least one of the funeral services companies um, and how it transitioned from being a, a company that, you know, didn't have debt and everything to being one that had debt and that was a roll up basically. So Wall Street ruined it. How's the long term chart? Long term chart, it's gone from in 1997, it was 21 bucks a share um, and it's been as low as, you know, two to three dollars per share. Uh, even lower yeah <laughs> and then recently uh through the pandemic which i guess you could i do remember funeral stocks going crazy it was at 63 dollars per share yeah so it's pretty volatile yeah but that's not crazy i mean in terms of the total enterprise value it's not some of part of that is, is still pretty volatile but in terms of the total enterprise value it's not as crazy as you think because if most of the enterprise value is debt then small changes in the enterprise value are changing the equity portion of it like this uh, by a large amount. There's a reason why like LBOs being not um, marked to market is a big advantage for people, you know, in terms of stomaching mm -hmm. it. Uh, if you took the same thing and put it in the market, it would look much more like this, right? Um, because if there's a, you know, we've seen, right, for companies that are, you know, the overall S&P 500, let's say, if we imagine that they're completely debt-free, we've seen them come down 20, 25% in a year. Um, now it's an extreme year, but we've seen that this calendar year. So if you imagine their entire enterprise value is changing by 20 or 25%, if you have that happen here, um, that kind of change actually would, you know, have your stock price or more, um, because the debt portion, the basically if the debt is still worth its face value, um, then the, the equity is absorbing all of that. And so when you have something like meta, in many ways, right? It's more impressive, the huge decline in that company because it's all equity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, lots of stocks go down 75% or something, but not many stocks that have some cash and no debt 
drop 75%. That's, you know, because if the enterprise value of something like carriage services drops 75%, the, the equity would look like we, we saw in that part where you're saying it dropped below a few dollars a share. It, it would drop to like nothing because there's serious concern about whether the debt's safe. Um, it, it's impressive when you have something drop like Meta um, where there's not debt in front of the, the equity. So that's the entire enterprise value changing by that much. It, the actual enterprise value of um, carriage services probably did not change as much as Meta when it dropped from you know sixty dollars to twenty five dollars or whatever. But because there's so much more debt, um, even though the business wasn't revalued as dramatically as it was with Meta, the stock is you know the the stock price has moved by not all that much less. Could you ever see yourself being interested in a funeral homes? uh as a potential investment or is this something that like the business model the act of putting so much leverage on it is just something that you wouldn't be interested in i mean obviously from like an industry perspective you know none of us make it out of this life alive and it's pretty predictable the amount of people that are going to die every single year so that predictability element is there which is why they throw on a ton of debt but do you think from like an investor's perspective the actual business model with using all that leverage would you know keep you away from uh an industry like this yeah it's possible i'm a little skeptical sometimes of lbo type debt being put on something that's perceived to be incredibly um predictable that's often the way that you can sell things to the public and and, you know to, to lenders and everything uh to be able to put on more debt than maybe you should on something and to be able to get a higher multiple than maybe you should because i think if you're like rolling these up and this was rolling things up much more in the past than recently i think the problem is often what are the actual underlying organic um, results that we're seeing and i think they can become very obscured one of the things i get the most emails about and i'm the least helpful about is people really bring me a lot of roll-ups um a lot of them and my answer in most of those cases, after looking at their presentations or their whatever things about their history and everything, it's kind of hard for me to see what's happening with the underlying business. Um, sometimes I'm not sure the underlying business might be getting a slightly bit worse and we think it's just staying just the same. They, we think it's getting slightly, a slight bit better. When there's so much financial engineering on something, I think it's hard to know for sure. Uh, and so I, I'm cautious about that. And that just means you have to like management even more. But, you know, with the right communication and the right management and everything, yeah, I could see myself owning a company in in um, a funeral home type thing if I really like the management and everything. But it would rely more on that than normal because I feel like that's the only way I would get to the really the underlying things. But that's kind of true for all roll-ups. I, I'd be extra cautious about management and everything. I would never get involved in a roll-up where I didn't really like management and what they were saying and everything a lot. And I'd be very cautious about any roll-up in which I had any doubts about management uh, at all. I mean, I know Buffett and Berkshire is more so thought of as like a conglomerate as opposed to, I'm going to go roll up this industry. But, you know, he's made a decent amount of investments in insurance and, uh, you know, different businesses in the same industry. So, but from that perspective, it's different because obviously you trust Buffett, you understand, um, you know, sort of his capital allocation framework. Um, He's not crazy and never going to lever up, you know, a gazillion to none. So do you think it's just different, uh, from like that perspective that you just would have a lot more trust in Buffett doing it versus 
some of these other uh, actors in roll-ups? There's nothing right or wrong about the structure of it and the fact that they're doing it. Um, Got it. If you invested with Buffett and you invested with Singleton, you made a lot of money. If you invested with most of the other famous conglomerates from that era, you lost a lot of money. And it wasn't all just luck that you couldn't have foreseen. Uh, their attitudes were different, and some of that was known at the time that their attitudes were different and their personalities were different. And if you explored that, I think you could have figured out which people would have been safer to go with and which ones you might want to avoid. Um, but yeah, no, there's no doubt Buffett based it on his part of his approach that he learned was the value of being able to do a conglomerate that way with people who, who used it for very different purposes. And so they used it in a chain letter way of trying to drive higher and higher stock price with a lot of earnings manipulation, and which is a game that works for a number of years but can't work forever. And Buffett said, okay, how do I do that same thing and do this as something that's durable that can last forever, basically, um, doing it. And it's just it, it, it's just the structure of it. I mean, I think we talked last week or something about, you know, would I like a stock with, would I invest in a stock with class A, class mm -hmm. B? If you like the management and you like what you're doing, it's better for them to have absolute control, but it's bad if you don't. And people always ask, well, don't you like, do you like, there's a ton of insider ownership here. And it's sometimes when people talk to me about something, they say, and look how great this is that there's a ton of insider ownership. Or they basically, they say like, you know, well, yeah, there's this questions about management or whatever. I'm not sure about all this and stuff, but they own a lot. They have a lot of skin in the game. I don't want them to have a lot of skin in the game if I don't like mm -hmm. them. Um, you know, so I would, if I really didn't like them, I'd rather they be professional management that owns a really small amount and, and is probably going to be gone or, or someone could make a run of the company or whatever. Um, so is it good or bad, the setup at Meta? It depends on if you love or hate what, what Zuckerberg is going to do there. Um, if you believe in him more than any other kind of management, then it's good. If you believe in Buffett more, it's good. Um, there's no structure that's better or worse that way for investors in terms of just what your overall result is going to be. A highly democratic structure is not necessarily good if like the stock is undervalued. And um, it'd be because basically all that would happen then is you get a quick pop and yeah, you get a good annualized return, but you never realize things over time. It, it, you know, the more democratic the structure, basically, um, the more that you're just, you know, like <laughs> it might sound great to let's have a stock that has um, very low insider ownership, no debt, plenty of cash. It's really cheap. You know, there's no class A and class B. It's easy to buy the stock. That sounds great, right? But all that gets you, and, and it's good, but it, what it gets you is a short pop because there's going to be a run at the company. Something's going to happen. There's going to be a chaos. Whatever activist thing happens, it's very easy for it to happen, and you're just going to put it in play and have it sold. Um, whereas if you have management stuff that you want to see it play out, how they create value, then actually you want it to be the opposite of what's a good activist target. So I guess to minimize people bringing you so many roll-ups, I mean, what are some qualities about roll-ups that you like versus ones that you dislike? Here's the big issue. It's, it's really not a roll-up thing. It's just an issue between how I look at companies and managements and things and how other people do. I'm just very cynical or whatever, I guess. <laughs> okay. Um, 
I, I do I put very, very little weight, like to no weight on what management is telling me in terms of the actual facts and how to look at their company and stuff like that. I think I spend a lot of time thinking about management in terms of trying to analyze how management is saying what they're saying in terms of sort of psychoanalyzing management in terms of what this means that they're saying this to me and everything and what I think that means about management. But I, you know, I don't really care what management says in their investor presentation about what they think their company is, what they think it's worth, any of that. I don't, you know, I, I don't think about mm-hmm. that. Um, so I'm going to look at it and decide on it my own way. And so there are several times where people bring me something. Look, it's this is just like a much broader concept than um, like we talk about banks on this. I don't want to name what banks they are, but people bring me a couple banks. They repeatedly bring me banks that I particularly do not like. And I'm polite in saying, you know, I just, you know, this isn't really for me or whatever. And, you know, and they have good numbers the last 10 years or whatever, but there's things about management, what they're doing, whatever, that it's not that they're bringing me kind of an average bank or whatever. They're bringing me something that I actually, if we gave lists of, you know, the banks or whatever, um, they stand out to me in things that I particularly dislike about it, what they're doing um, and find particularly risky and stuff like that. And the same thing happens with people bringing me certain kinds of companies, including some companies that, you know, I think have reasonable risks of being frauds, for instance. Um, You know, there's a couple of those that have been brought to me a a few times, you know, and I don't know that they are frauds. I mean, there's just things about them that that I don't like. Um, And, you know, uh, you know, the people are charismatic. They present in a in a way that attracts people and attracts investors and sometimes in that same way uh repels me and i do get brought a lot of stocks um that are more in that category i guess uh it's not sort of a there's just not a random sample of people um bringing me things that um i guess it's true but also just like a few, sometimes people discover something that no one else has found and everything, but these things do get passed around a lot more and stuff. If management puts out their story and if they kind of find certain investors and stuff to spread it around there. And so there are just certain ones that you get, you know, um, there, there's just like within individual industries and things, there's just stocks that are popular for value investors to talk mm-hmm. about or for investors to talk about um, because they use the right words to talk about, um, what they're doing and how they're creating value and, um, you know, and they dial their message into that. And, um, you know, I mean, it's it's kind of part of the role of playbook, right? Like communicate your story, get that premium multiple acquire private businesses at a multiple that's like what, you know, three to four times EBITDA, maybe three to five times EBITDA, trade in the market at 10 to 15 times EBITDA, and then you get that immediate value um, creation, right? In theory, from a market value perspective. So, I mean, do you think that the mm-hmm. roll-up strategy, if you will, it takes a special type of breed or there's a special type of person that uh, is going to, you know, I mean, cause think about it. A lot of these probably are finance backgrounds and they understand that discrepancy between 
you know, the private market the yeah. multiple and the public market multiple and then communicating the story and then going out and actually doing it. You know, I mean, it, communicating it to the market is a huge part of rolling up an industry to get that premium multiple. Right. And Henry Singleton did that. Um, and then, you know, reverse his course when his stock was cheap and did the opposite. Um, but it certainly was the basis of what he did early on. Uh, Buffett did not. Buffett was super secretive basically um he you know wrote letters and continued to sign them under the name of the the uh ceo who when they're really his letters so they're you know ghost written that way um he went out of his way to not draw a lot of attention to to the conglomerate that he was creating in the first few years then he became very communicative you know but that's like 10 years or so after he first starts um doing that and really creating a lot of value um I guess I worry about the personality sometimes of the people involved in what they're doing. Um, I think a lot of times people will say, you know, to me, well, they have to get their story out there and they have to put the best spin on it and whatever. And um, I, I think there's a danger, whether it's fooling yourself or getting in the habit of talking about things a certain way. I do think that it, it changes you and your approach and everything to be spinning all the time. I, I think it can be risky. What do you mean spinning? I don't, I, you know, I, do, well, I just, I mean, look, we had a election the other day, right? I mean, politicians as part of their job is to go out on the campaign trail and say things and stuff. I think it is not correct to believe that if you say things all the time, it doesn't start to change what you actually think, what you believe and what you're going to do in the mm -hmm. future. I think it does. You hear yourself speak. Uh, I, you are not immune to your own voice that way. And you do change yourself over time by doing that. Uh, I think we sometimes have a feeling that it's possible to believe one thing and say something else all the time and that we can judge that and see that with someone, you know, but, um, I don't think that's a hundred percent true. And I think there's certain things where it, it can be a little dangerous over time. And, I, you know, I don't love, you know, that we do earnings guidance and this and that of, of things um, with public companies, because I think a few of these aren't great. I think um, for myself, for instance, I think that having too many comments on the record about something and my opinions about whatever, say, stocks we own or things we're going to do or whatever is not good. It's better to be on the record less and not pound into your own head certain beliefs and things. So it is easier to reverse yourself in the future as you get new facts and face different situations and whatever. Um, so I don't even mean it in like a dishonest way or anything like that. I'm, I'm not making an, uh, saying an ethical thing about things. I'm saying just being a good salesman um, does present certain risks that you would have to inoculate yourself against, or it will start to change your own thinking about stuff. Um, if you're, if you're doing something that's slightly risky and you're saying all the time that it's don't worry, we have it under control. It's safe. Eventually you kind of erode the, um, the safety that you have in it, you know, um, because you are slightly exaggerating how safe it is when you're, you know, talking publicly. Um, cause everyone's doing things that are, that have some risks and stuff. And, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's better to talk as little as possible about some things and to keep a lot of those to yourself um, so you can reverse yourself in the future and um, deal with the situation as you find it then. And having a lot of 
statements sort of on the record and convincing yourself of things I don't think is always um, best. So I, you know, um, it would be nice if like companies investor relations was completely separate function from their executives and stuff, <laughs> you know, at a lot of companies the CFO was basically doing investor relations, which, you know, isn't ideal. Uh-huh. Right, because then the CFO is on record saying, you know, oh, this level of debt to to EBITDA and whatever is perfect, and we want to be in this target thing and what, and maybe it is perfect until credit conditions change and stuff, and you know, financial conditions and whatever, and things change in the industry, and then you go, oh, we we've been running this the wrong way for a long time, and you know, um, I I need to change my attitude about that, uh, but you sort of convince yourself because you argue against people and stuff with this. Mm-hmm. You know? So you think it's better just to be sort of more silent. Yeah, and I mean, there's been certain situations, where, like for instance, companies that have short reports written on them and stuff where I, getting in one camp or the other, I think people convince themselves too much that the entirety of the argument is correct when there's evidence that that's not true. Um, so for, I mean, I won't get into which companies it is and stuff, but I've seen some cases with companies where it is true that there's stuff in the short report which I think is not correct. However, it's also true that there's stuff in it which I think is very much true um, and, uh, it, the, basically because of who it's coming from and that they are putting out all negative things about a variety of different stuff, people then don't accept as, um, as true, even when there's a lot of evidence, some of the accusations that there are, um, do you, that, that just comes up from like a human fault where people just get so passionate about it. Anger comes in, all rationality flies out. And there's like social consistency there to where they could see sort of that disconfirming evidence and just completely ignore it. Yes, I think that's true. I also think that it sometimes it's, um, um, yeah, I think that's true. I, I also think that sometimes it's alarming how easily that giving an explanation for something, explaining it, even though it's a bad explanation is much more effective than not having an explanation. Um, Uh I'm always surprised by that, how effective that is. Right. So we did this because blah, blah, blah. And it it isn't a very good, it's not a very realistic explanation, you know? Um, so yeah, yeah, there's, there's just some companies where I would say, you know, um, for instance, people say, well, it's not that big a deal because look, it didn't affect this or, or that, um, well, well, let's take an example. Let's, let's take an example of one that's not like a, such a current one. This is easier to deal with. Um, Tyco, right? So there's things that people could argue about Tyco. Oh, well, it wasn't really that bad because so, so you know, oh, the, the CEO shouldn't, you know, go to jail and stuff for this. And, oh, it wasn't really that bad because it didn't distort this and that for a long enough period of time and whatever. There's much worse frauds about things. Um, a lot of that's true. There is, however, like very clear what other purpose did was some of what they were doing serve except to deceive shareholders in a very intentional way um and that's the only purpose for why you would do what you did um and this has to do with like merger accounting and and the way that they handled things that way but it's not like oh you know like there'll be these stories about you know some fed official trading policy things up some of them will be oh i inadvertently filed some paperwork wrong you know and this will be treated as seriously as a story about things where people 
intended to deceive about some stuff. Uh, we can honestly tell the difference in a lot of these cases between that. So there's a bunch of cases with companies where they engage in stuff that there is no logical explanation except we were trying to deceive you about stuff. There's no there's no offered excuse for it other than that. We were prettying up the numbers, you know, like, and this is why we were doing it. Um, and so that does worry me when people say like, oh, well, it wasn't too bad what they did or whatever. Um, it shouldn't be an issue that they're doing it at all. Uh -huh. um, and it's very alarming that they, <laughs> that they would do that. Uh, they're trying to trick you about certain things. I mean, I think know? a good example of that um, is, right? Like we've spoken about SPACs on this podcast and you had said, you yeah. know, for a fact, you wouldn't even be interested in a SPAC just because of sort of the incentives from the starting line were so flipped where you wouldn't even want to be associated with an individual that was participating in one. Yeah. And I think I talked about, oh, you know, cause this is more one that's I main specs have kind of all blown up and stuff. So I guess we can talk about that, but uh, Chinese reverse mergers is a good example. You know, they're basically all frauds and you know, you can't prove that they're frauds. Uh, it, you know, it's it, usually it's not that easy to find a smoking gun to prove that they were fraud at the time. Um, but, you have this serious question about why do they exist? Um, and that's what I mean about people bringing me certain things. I mean, sometimes there's a, there's a good explanation for it. Um, you know, there's an alternative explanation that at least makes some sense. Uh, but sometimes there, there's not so much and that, that they do certain things where there's not as much of a different explanation. And that's what worries me. And, you know, like as an example, I think um, Sequoia understood well that Valiant was trying to present things a certain way and was very aggressive that way. And they stuck with the stock because they thought it probably wasn't that big a deal and that they actually liked what they were doing in terms of the, the substance of it and everything. But I think that there was a point where they really understood well, oh, that's just how he is and this is what he's doing and that's why he's doing it. You know, that he's selling things a certain way and that he's, you know, um, and you probably want to put more weight on that as well as huge hedge funds. Right. And then you have Munger come out and just say that Valiant is a sewer. <laughs> and that was like the end of it for him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, like he's basically so... saying management is trash what they're doing. I want to stay as far away as possible from this company no matter how great the numbers are, no matter how well everything's being communicated, their actual business itself is, um, you know, it, it's not good what they're doing. I want to stay away from it. Right. And that brings up a sort of, so the, this is sort of a um, debate because there is some mathematically there, you know, something like Valiant when it's going well um, and it's done right. And we talked about Teledyne. We talked about Berkshire Hathaway, right? Um, finding something that looks not so great to some people, but actually turns out to be great, um, what they're doing, and that is justified. And um, the the payoff is so big in terms of the multiples that you can make, whereas you can only lose what you put into it, that there is some justification for this, that it is hard to say to people mathematically that if you, that look, there's so many stocks you can buy that when you do find something that, you know, you bring it to me or to whoever, and I'm like, you know, I, this is just, you know, what I can do usually is say, okay, so like these banks will bring, you know, 
I, I don't know how this is going to end up and whatever. What I can tell people is if you brought me 20 banks, this is the one of the 20, right? There's 19 out of 20 that I'm more okay with than this. Doesn't mean that this is doing something that's going to blow it up and everything, but this is the the tail, mm-hmm. you know, in the distribution here. This is, we can do that where, you know, and a lot of times that's true with these things that are these fraud risks and stuff. I can't prove that it's a fraud, but I can tell people what they're doing in some of these cases um, is stuff that's so aggressive that, you know, you're in this less than 5% category that I'm, I'm really confident you're that 95% of companies are, um, are, are, you know, I'm more sure they're not frauds and stuff. Um, But it's, it's hard. And also like I've written things about companies and and stuff. um, And, and it, it did, um, does worry me even talking about and stuff because like i remember i wrote up something once and just kind of casually mentioned why i would avoid it because of an accounting issue thing and like it got picked up and put on a message board or something Uh and then what happened did people come for you or no 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 one came for me and it and it turned out that they they failed to file their financials correctly and stuff but um so it you know it was a justifiable thing to say here's the issue and, and that's in fact the that line item is the the issue of why they couldn't file. Um, so yeah, it was possible to identify there was an accounting possibility here and to identify which balance sheet item the possibility had to do with and the company, you know, uh, failed to file with the SEC because of that. Doesn't mean it's a fraud, doesn't mean whatever, but it is possible to identify things that have particularly high risk that way. Um, what I was saying though is that people are right to say, on the numbers though mathematically like you can't just i mean i say it but but i think you could say look you don't have to do like what buffett says that you can just there's so many pitches you don't have to swing at any of them you know no one calls you out on strikes and so if you have concerns about fraud or about um like just the level of riskiness of certain things or management concerns about whatever just as people that you avoid those entirely because the payoff is so big in in stocks the home runs you know it's not a game where you either strike out or hit a single there is an uncapped sort of potential for um these multibagger um returns that does mean that if you if you say look at Berkshire Hathaway and say oh well you know let's take take the partnership years he doesn't reveal his holdings right so i'm not going to invest with him right cuz i'm i feel there's too much possibility for for wrongdoing and stuff, so I'm not going to invest with them. Well, you missed out on a lot, right? If you've said that, and some people did presumably say, I'm not going to invest with Buffett because he won't reveal the holdings of his fund each year to me and other money managers would. And so I miss out on all of that. Um, and that's a possibility with, with any of these. Um, and there are some cases where it, you know, um, there, there's some percentage. It's not a huge percentage, but I will admit there's some percentage of things that may have had some questionable stuff going on early on that they, it then worked out, and so may did they wish it into existence? Did it? Mm-hmm. There was some substance there, but there also was some uh, um, sizzle without stake there that was used to raise money and everything, and and it turned into something somewhat legitimate over time. Um, we've actually had some success investing in some companies that, uh, that, you know, 
management changed and everything, but like in a previous existence had some um, problems with it. And that may be one reason why the stock gets cheap sometimes, it, right? Is if you have a turnover from one management to another, let's take the example of Berkshire. Berkshire, there was nothing wrong ethically with the management that Buffett pushed out, but their cap allocation was not what was going to lead to good results. So getting rid of one management and coming in and stuff, there was a lot that probably that stock was cheap enough for a while, in part because its results had been so bad for a while because of who its management had been. And it took a while for the stock to kind of realize there's a new management here doing totally different things. Um, so... And that part comes into with any of the with any company that um, ends up in the kind of situation where people say they've cleaned house and whatever, and uh, you know, change things. They, they've addressed the issues that people had. Um, there's also just like a similarity between a lot of them, to be honest. Um, in ter in terms of like why it's attractive to people, right? Because the the thing with a lot of them is. It's a lot of financial engineering, really. Because yeah, like right. actually creating a lot of value through a real business is difficult. Certain kinds of financial engineering are easier, right? So like if, if we're saying here's a restaurant versus here's, a, you know, they're totally legitimate businesses. We talk about like dominoes and things. But if I'm going to do a fraud of some kind or going to do something that's ultra risky and stuff, it's going to be structured as a franchise system. It's not going to be structured as us owning the, the stores. There's more room for us to do things that create a lot of value in the stock market and stuff if we do it through a franchise system um, and more elaborate deals and stuff than through actually owning them, right? Um, so there, there's, you know, look, people are attracted to the compounders. I guess that's the simplest way of saying it, right? So they're really attracted to the companies that compound and that say that we can compound and everything. And so when I say there's here are these, it's not like I say, oh, well, they, they brought me a couple of banks that I don't love and the banks have so, so past records. No, the banks have amazing compound records. That's why they're bringing them to me. Um, and they say they're doing something different and stuff, which, which, you know, which is certainly true. They're doing something different, but whether it's different good or different bad or, or what, you know. Um, you know, the art to it too, Jeff, could be like so many people could bring you ideas you could be like, oh, yeah, this is great. I like it. It's probably going to be really successful going forward. And they could be like, oh, are you going to buy it? And you'll be like, no, I'm not going to. And a lot of that could come from like just the art of investing where it's like you could think everything looks amazing and for whatever reason, just still not invest in it. So that's why I always try to talk about it. It's like what gets you over or across the finish line? And it's hard because you can't really give a black and white answer. Every single situation is different. Yes, there, I guess there, there's, we, we do these where we talk about the stocks that, you know, um, we go through like a screen or something like this, or we go through Twitter. And I guess what makes the most sense is to think about what am I actually saying and what are you thinking when you're looking at it about why you're saying no. So in a lot of these, I might say, no, no, the price is too high versus what I'm going to pay. Okay. We'll keep that on your radar because that's something that can be fixed very easily, you know? Oh, uh, no, because I don't understand the industry. Well, you may understand um, teen skate shoes and stuff and stuff that Zumi sells, you know. Um, I don't understand that, you know, demographic, that the products and the, all that stuff. Um, but you maybe could learn about that or you're comfortable making, um, basing on expert opinion on that about other people's opinions about what that would be. Or say we, we talked about a gun manufacturer, maybe 
you do find out that it has to do with certain political wins and stuff. And then you can base that on experts' opinions about that and how to time that and everything. So you can fix those sorts of things. Or it could be based on like uh, that there's the people involved. Um, now, normally on this podcast, I will not say that as the reason. I will come up with some other reason as to why, you know, I will kind of dodge the question. Because you brought me a stock before where I said, no, I don't like the person running it. No. So it, it just means like, no, we will never look at that with that person involved. And, uh, you know, that, that's it. Um, because I've just made a judgment about that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and we certainly on a podcast, though, we will always avoid saying that I'm not going to say, look with this person, we will not invest in this or whatever. Um, because it's like slanderous basically, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, there are patterns of things that you see. Um, and sometimes, you know, look, sometimes that is the good thing. I mean, we were talking about, uh, Berkshire, you know, Berkshire had the conglomerate thing in some ways, the fact that there were some um, bad instances of the use of a conglomerate really gave a bad name to that. And that kind of helped Berkshire be undiscovered for a certain period of time. Um, because there had been others that hadn't done too well. So that that's not a bad thing to find a category where this country or this industry or this these roll-ups or whatever have some bad examples from them. And here's a really good one. Um and actually, I've even talked to some people who are aware of that fact at times. like, And that's good if they have that kind of self-awareness of, okay, well, yeah, we do get that we're trying to do something where there's been some examples of uh, not-so-good stuff that the market's aware of, of trying mm-hmm. to do this, you know, but we think that we can do this the right way. And Buffett certainly had that awareness with the conglomerates. He knew this is something that had been used um, for the wrong reasons before, yeah. So, like, just how success leaves clues... I'm curious, the ones that don't work out and turn out to be like these huge blow ups, it seems like when all of the information comes out in the future, it it looks so obvious uh, in hindsight. I'm kind of curious, like, I think you're really good at reading between the lines on Mm -hmm. uh, companies and like how they communicate certain things. Like they could put out a new disclosure or change the disclosure or change the way that they describe something. And I think you're good at instead of just you know, just reading it and thinking nothing of it, you're going to interpreting what that could mean. Do you think a lot of the situations that end up to be big blowups or just, you know, frauds or big, uh, you know, mistakes for investors, do you think a lot of times the companies sort of kind of communicate it where it's out there in the open as opposed mm-hmm. to just like waking up one day and be like, oh, wow, this is going to be bad. This headline just came out and... Uh, this is going to be an issue. And I always think of a time actually when I was uh, reading through a, a quarterly report and they added some new disclosure about, um, I don't know if it was internal controls, but they had mentioned that a company they used to be affiliated with uh, was being investigated by the IRS for tax issues. Oh. And they just added that disclosure in there randomly one quarter. And I was like, okay, I know for a fact I haven't read this disclosure before. And I, I use a website called Draftable where you could put in this, you know, the, a present quarterly report or 10K or document, and then you could put in an older one and it compares. It's basically like, like what lawyers use or when you strike out mm-hmm. stuff, it just tells like the difference between the two. And um, I was like, yeah, they've never <laughs> entered this, uh, this disclosure or they've never said this in any of their filings before. 
and I felt like that was a signal, you know, that they're telling you something could happen. Uh, I don't know if they add in their risks, risk section or what, I can't remember right now, but it seems like how success leaves clues, um, the other side, failure leaves clues as well. Would you agree with that? Yeah, so I think um, some of the issues uh, you can identify, like one thing is with any sort of thing with fraud things or anything like that, um, you're not going to have, it's very hard to have direct evidence of it because it's the intent, um, which is a coordinated intent to do something. So there's always an explanation for it. Um, you know, it's the opposite of like a, a murder thing. With, with a murder, with a homicide, you know, someone's dead. We uh, figure out they've been killed probably by someone else. And then we figure out who did it and everything. But there's not this argument about whether there was this crime committed and what the intent was to, to do that. It's really about who did it and all of that. This is almost always the reverse, which is that there can be agreement on what the act was, but there's disagreement on what the intent was behind it. And so it's only when put into perspective with a bunch of other things that you can really figure out what uh, is going on. And so the defense against it always from people who like the stock or from whatever people who deny it and stuff is that, you know, yes, there's five, six, seven, eight different isolated things that you found that are a little unusual, you know, irregularities. But it's hard to actually, you haven't actually been able to put together how they fit together and, and, um, and prove what the what was going on there, right? Um, so that's always the difficulty about it, and I think that's one of the hardest things. Uh, so what that means is that each thing that you discover kind of seems slightly innocent. You're ne you know, you're never going to find that one thing that um, that that you'll be able to convince people of is um, clearly wrong that someone did. Um, the most common thing that I think you find, uh, or I find, um, is that I can't understand it. And I've said this for a lot of people, but genuinely that I cannot understand what they're saying, what they're doing. Um, being unclear is really the big hint. Um, because that's sort of the thing you have to do is you can't say why you're doing it. The, the real reason that you're doing it. So it ends up very obscure. Now the defense of many businesses will be, well, it really is very confusing and stuff and it's very hard to understand and everything. It's very technical. And this is why you don't understand it. And, um, but that's always sort of the signal. So I, th I think I mentioned that in a 10 K that I read one time that it, it made a comment of something that was an accounting thing. It used a term that I'd never seen before. I've read a lot of 10Ks, so if they're, they're, they describe an asset in a way that I've never seen that used, you know? So, like, you, you always read deferred tax asset. Okay, so it could be complicated or not what that means, but it appears a lot, and you can understand what it means, and then you just have to find context of it. So this was just a term I'd never seen before. And then when looking to find the explanation of it, because if it's a term I've never seen before, really, there should be a description of it you know, an explanation of what it is there. I didn't find it. And that seems like a really small thing, but that's so highly unusual that it almost means that they're definitely doing something very strange. Um, 
because there shouldn't be a description of an item that I haven't seen before used in the, with those terms. Why would one business have it and hundreds of others never have used this term before? And, um, and then if you use something that's so unusual, and that's fine. You know, Buffett said owner earnings. Well, that's not a term other people use and stuff. But then he goes on and he talks about it and he describes and explains what are owner earnings. You can make up anything that you want. You just have to describe it somewhere. So, um, and uh, so you, you need to kind of give me a gloss of it, you know. Um, so that's the biggest issue that I find. Um, and there are some things that I've read that people have sent me that I find completely confounding. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, they hurt your brain. And in some cases, <clears throat> like what's an example? Yeah. Well, I can't give your head. No, I can't give an example. Cause one of them, there was a short report on it. It fell a lot and it's, there's clearly some fraud involved, but, um, was it a roll up? An, um, actually, <clears throat> um, Sort of. It's more complicated than that. It, so, yes, it was a roll-up, but they were creating the things they were rolling up. So they're creating things outside the company. Then they were rolling them into the company. But there's strong evidence, I think, that they were the ones who really created it through other related parties and things. The thing, okay. and they absorbed it. Yeah, okay. Is this so, something that came crashing down as of, like, the past year? Um. Yeah, I mean, no. It's, it's still a publicly traded company and stuff. I And there's... It's a it has some substance to it but anyway it was doing something my, my point is it was doing something with um it was doing something in a particular way that i think the only purpose of that to, to me to understand it is um there basically they you wanted to have a stuff you weren't going to report so like to simplify the idea you wanted to like lose some money and stuff and not report you were losing money for it's sort of like um you wanted to start up some businesses have some losses, not report them. And then once the company was making some money, make it part of your company. All right. That's kind of a gross simplification of it, but that's the sort of thing they, they were probably wanting to do. Um, there's no legitimate reason for why you would, you can't accidentally, oops, we, the, you know, oh, we now understand we made a mistake. We're very sorry um, that this doesn't conform to accounting rules. I mean, you, it was a very, you were doing that for a reason. Um, and as they were with lots of different companies with like, um, uh, wanting to report things in a certain way, right. Um, that you have an idea that people will focus on this number or whatever. So that's the other really big one is, you know, when people are focused on a particular number, not focused on lots of other numbers, the dot com thing was bad that way because they, there was more focus on numbers, which weren't gap numbers right mm -hmm. and so that gets tricky because when we start talking about things like um wh what's an active user right now we can make up i mean that's th there's a lot more disagreement about what is a daily active user monthly active user um you're seeing that now with twitter and elon going in there he tried backing out of his deal because of that i mean i'm mm -hmm. sure there's other things as well but that's what he was using an example as Right. And so there's a lot more disagreement on that. That doesn't mean that they're bad measures to use. It, it's fine. And, and uh, actually, I think they'd be really good measures to use if um, less people focused on them. What always worries me is when there's something that people focus on a lot. I don't know if you've talked about this before, but, you know, like people ask, like, should you focus on, or, or here's what they say basically is like, um, 
what's the hardest thing to fake? You know, like, isn't it really hard to fake free cash flow or something? Not exactly. If what's hard to fake, what's very, very hard to fake is a variety of different things looking legitimate together and letting you choose what to look at in relation to each other. But any one number is not that hard to fake. Um, you know, some companies are valued on sales. Sales are like the easiest thing in the world to fake. Um, sales are actually a very squishy number um, from an accounting perspective. But they're not that easy to fake in relation to other things because then it would throw off all sorts of others. You know, then you'd have to explain, oh, why did your gross margins drop to nothing? Mm-hmm. You know? But if people don't care about that at all, if they really only are valuing it on like, you know, 10 times sales and who cares what the gross margins are and it's okay, um, then you can fool them. Um, but as long as they're paying attention to the different items, like when we go through quick FS and we look at each of these things, then it's hard because anything you do is going to affect these other items in a way that looks very strange. Um, and so it's always, that's like when we talk about, you know, valued on sales, valued on gross profit, value on, you know, you never want to just value it on one thing. It's okay in, in cases where the accounting is very similar between the companies and very legitimate, but um, but there were cases. I mean, at the you know, like this was a private company at the time, but in the later stages of like WeWork, where I think um, it was just purely done to manufacture evaluation. It was yeah, literally knew that. Yeah, so it's okay. They only care about my sales. Right. Like they're only valuing on revenue and stuff. So here's how much square feet I get. Here's how many people I put, you know, here's how much I can put in here and stuff and to manufacture sales. And it doesn't matter at what cost I manufacture those sales. So it's not like a real business that way, you know. Um, so I don't have a problem with any of these, you know, where like Munger complains about EBITDA or something. I don't have a problem with any of these measures being used. And sometimes these measures are better um, free cash flow or whatever. Um, but they're actually best when management doesn't talk about them. So the thing that should give you the greatest confidence is this company producing like terrific free cash flow and stuff. And they only talk to you about reported earnings because then they're not managing that number the way they report it to you. And there's nothing that they're doing with it to target that number. And so actually a number that's, you know, just achieved as a result of aiming for other things and it naturally comes along is a big help. Once you start actually focusing in on a specific number, measuring that number, making everything guided towards that number, then it's less, it becomes less reliable. And in some companies, there's a really good, um, it's hard to fake things and stuff because they're very um, tangible business and it would be very obvious what you're doing. Um, So, you know, we can't fake a ton of stuff with Chipotle because we can go in there and we can look at these things and we start to figure out, well, that doesn't make any sense. H- mm-hmm. How can you be, you know, you can go to one and be like, well, you can't be having 5,000 people a day going through it if yeah. I'm sitting there and seeing that. Unit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, um, like, you know, when we're, you know, back to the dot-com era and stuff with Enron, the stuff that Enron was booking and things is just like totally on, you know, it's trading stuff that they're doing investment bank it can report whatever it wants people don't understand what it's doing um so but you would see that in the accounting right from like net income to cash flow well yeah but some things are really 
you know, like someone was asking me about Credit Suisse. And so they had me read all their stuff for it and stuff. And uh, it has so many different units doing so many different things that um, there's nothing wrong with it. Like, I'm not saying that they're doing anything wrong. I'm saying um, it's complicated. And if you misunderstood which part they were putting something in, uh, it could get confusing. Um, like, for instance, they move some stuff from an, uh, like, like how they segment it from like wealth management to investment bank or investment bank to wealth management and stuff. Um, that can get very tricky with what that means. Um, and so like, it's very easy for you not to understand uh, what's happening. Reclassifying things constantly and stuff can really, can really fool you um, with conglomerates. It's, you know, simple businesses, like we're talking about like a Chipotle thing is easy, but if you were, if you suddenly are Chipotle, but you also uh, take that and mix that with Netflix and take that and mix that with a life insurer, and you say, well, each of them are a pretty simple business, but once you blend those accounting together, it's now too, it's it, now there's room for, for tricking people about stuff because you're booking things, unless you segment it out properly, you're booking things in different ways to really fool them. You know, you're, mm -hmm. you're making a financial transaction and it looks like a burrito sale because of how you're able to do that if you have those things mixed in together. And you have to, and like Berkshire Hathaway, you know, they break out some different things. Um, it's those kinds of things with conglomerates is a very easy way to trick people um, because they just focus on like, you know, revenue or whatever. Um, and it's mixing in things of a financial nature with things of a very real nature. Um, and it's very possible to, to be too confusing for them. Um, that was a lot of GE. It's just like, it, it was a lot of that was, but people under analysts understood, I think, and they kind of winked at it and stuff, but it's like, we will talk a lot about some very basic businesses and we lump everything together and we get more and more earnings from stuff that aren't that, but we still present ourselves as if that is what, um, this might be coming from, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so you moved it, it's a lot of financialization. You took something that looked like industrial company or something. And over time you made it very financial and you kind of didn't, um, weren't, and you kind of were trying to get valued as if you were still, more of a predictable financial thing instead a predictable industrial thing instead of being something that is more um value based on a being on a purely financial basis um so i, I think but i mean i think that draws people in sometimes because of the past record you know with a company like that that is what happened um i i don't think any no matter what we say i don't think it's possible to dissuade people from chasing after some of these things. So I think it's pretty hopeless, to be honest, having the mm -hmm. experience of doing this for a while. Um, people want to believe <laughs> in stuff. Sometimes really good stuff, sometimes really bad stuff, and they'll believe in it even when it doesn't uh, make a lot of sense. It doesn't hold together really coherently that well. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the things I found difficult um, for people to avoid and and it's one of the reasons why i think you know some degree of diversification and stuff beyond what i think is really warranted statistically i'm kind of okay with 
because I do realize the adverse selection kind of stuff might be more than I realized with some investors um, that they have a tendency to end up holding stuff more in their portfolio that's kind of being sold to them more than just going out and picking stuff themselves. It turns out that when you look at their portfolio, it's more stuff that was promoted to them than just stuff they found on their own. It's not an actual sample that that it doesn't have to do with how it was sold to them by investor relations and stuff, but actually has a higher proportion of things that have um, been kind of promoted a bit. I do realize yeah. that when people talk to me, yeah. I mean, you'd be even surprised, Jeff, the amount of prospective investors uh, in air quotes I speak to that just call to try getting our best ideas. And I know they're running their own book and I think they make, uh, you know, a business out of, or I guess they, they use all their investing time, just reaching out to funds as prospective investors. And then it's, you know, what's your best current idea? <laughs> and I'm like, get out of here, get out of here. Yeah. Like, yeah. And you know, it, it can that that can kind of work to some extent. I mean, um, if you pick the right people, so like Phil Fisher talked about this, where he was surprised that when he actually like studied where he got his ideas and stuff, it came much more so from other investors that he really uh, respected and stuff. And um, that is true. If you find the right people, that it does kind of. Um, sort itself it, it is a, a much better kind of screen to than running a screen you know um it is well at least get your ideas from us instead of getting it from investor relations or something yeah you know um well you've talked about that before right sometimes people will bring an idea to you and all the positives that they talk about it are yeah the positives that the management team outlines in their investor presentation. Yeah, that's a big issue. And I do notice that. I, I don't talk to a lot of people where there's really unique things about the value they find in the company that isn't talked about by the management and the investor relations and stuff. It really shapes what things you talk about. It, And I think maybe that's more the thing to think about is like, um, it's not like, oh, they're faking these numbers and this and that. So that's not how most things work with most companies. Uh, that, that's such a small, small portion of the things you have to be afraid of. Um, it's that they are directing you to what to pay attention to, right? So there's, there's good, whenever we look at anything, you know, that, that's what I mean by spin and stuff. When we look at anything, there's good and bad to it. Um, when we do the quick FS stuff, we should be saying, okay, here's the things that are positive. Here's the things that are negative. You can direct people's attention to just the positive things, right? And away from the negative. So let's say you're some company that has a lot of assets and you're undervalued relative to those assets and stuff, but your core business is not very good. You're not really generating stuff. You can make your presentation all about how you're undervalued versus your assets and try to avoid talking about the fact you're not really producing much in the way of earnings or the other way around. We produce all these great earnings and stuff, but you know, there's not much of a substance here and, and, and whatever. We can just talk about that. And people will not really notice that they've been directed completely to focusing on one thing and not another. And maybe you overcome that with checklists or something like that. Um, you, you don't really, I don't know how really. The, the unfortunate thing is that it seems completely who is um, doing the analyzing. So there's some people who everything that they would bring to me could fall in this category. There are others who will never 
bring something that's a bunch of fluff that's been brought to them by management. Um, they never buy into any of that stuff. And you would know that right away from what they've brought in the past and how they talk about things. It's just uh, a personality thing. Um, what is that personality? Some people are like investigative reporter personality types and some people are um, a different personality type. I don't know exactly how to describe it. Um, just as some people are really excited. I mean, some people are just really excited about upside. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I, I did a newsletter where I did net nets. It was one of the worst <clears throat> experiences writing about things, talking about things, whatever <coughs> of my uh, time in investing because net nets are a good thing to invest in. Um, as a category, they outperform almost any other thing. I mean, any of this quant stuff, which is meant to be applied to much more liquid and large stocks and stuff. So that's why this doesn't work, but it is not even close to net nets. I mean, this silly little strategy of buy net nets outperforms all the stuff that people spend tons of money in huge organizations to develop these quant stuff. It can't match net nets. Um, and not only that, it's pretty easy to improve upon the core returns of the net net thing and to shift it in a really meaningful way, not just improve in like a, like, I don't mean on a basis of like the annualized return you'll get with a pool of them, just that your mean return will be higher or whatever, but actually shifting it so that you have very few losses and, and whatever. Um, but um, most people, and there's small little exception to this, but most people, like if you write something about a, a website for NetNets or a newsletter for NetNets or just talk to people on this podcast about NetNets, they are remarkably good at picking the wrong ones. Um, and some of them might work out, but like they're amazingly good at picking, one, the frauds, but two, the ones that are financially in serious distress that they could go out of business and stuff. Um, as opposed to things that have very little chance of going out of business and have zero chance of being frauds, you know? Um, I, you know, when sometimes people have asked me about that, about like the stock, like why are you so confident? Or not why are you so confident this isn't a fraud, but like how would I know? Like, you know, they'll look at a stock and they'll say, I really don't know how to evaluate if this is a fraud or not a fraud. And I'll say, you know, um, they've in the last 20 years, management hasn't sold a share of stock. In the last 20 years, they haven't issued stock to anyone. They've paid dividends all the time, you know, um, and other things like that. But like, or like they don't have things listed as borrowing it. And yet they do have things listed as cash and stuff. Whereas there'll be some other situation where they'll have both a lot of borrowings and a lot of cash. They'll be issuing a lot of stock. They'll be selling a lot of stock, you know, whatever. They'll never pay dividends. Um, those factors together, you say, you know, this doesn't really make sense. What kind of fraud would this be? You know, um, and they never try to draw anyone's attention to it. And if you, you know, say like, can I talk to investor relations or whatever, they're saying, well, we don't really talk about that or they don't answer your email or whatever. Probably not a fraud. Um, and so, yeah, my experience with the net thing was awful that way because the, the selection that people would make would be really um, bad. If you gave them a list of net nets, they would pick... Um, the, they, they would disproportionately pick those that would likely as a group to give them a worse return. And certainly to have the almost um, would always be the ones that would have the very bad outcomes in them. Um, you know, you might get lucky with a few home runs in it too, 
so their their overall record might not be terrible if they held them both but they certainly would pick all the bad outcomes you know when we talk about like the tails of a distribution these would be the ones that'd be really bad they'd always get those in the mix and uh way more than you should in just sampling something and i you know i, I don't think i always understood why they would do that but i think it's mainly because of like the upside thing that they were looking for um i would stress you know it's not important what the upside is in a net, a net is very cheap so it you know it, they all have upside <laughs> if they survive and they're halfway decent they have upside um but you know just like the possibility of that also you know they'd want growing things and stuff like that so you know i i don't think a fast growing net net is necessarily a great idea um why would it be a net net if it was growing fast and everything like that but um yeah and so and you know so that thing about picking the wrong net nets i see that same sort of um pattern in attitudes about things that might be frauds um or might just be taking an incredible amount of like financial risk uh and not being that honest about it. i mean i say frauds frauds or things that are likely to like blow up or something because of what management is doing and that management is not being very honest with you not being honest with you is not exactly fraud but you can cer certainly figure out lots of cases where they're not very candid um and so people may have a much higher potential for picking frauds than i realize i think over time i've come to um see that that's true that i would not think that that that's something you have to really avoid a lot and not something to pay a lot of attention to because it's such a small part of the um of the market but people do get kind of caught up in hype things more than i would realize so uh, i you know um that is maybe the best uh the best way to fight that is like the 10k a day thing we're talked about you know just constantly finding some things yourself and reading about them um I guess the thing I don't, I probably didn't realize enough when writing that thing or just talking to people is that people are pretty um, passively finding things, maybe more so than I realized. Uh, is Their investment process is more, um, ideas are fed to them more than they might realize. And so the, it's not a very clean sample that they're getting. What they're getting is things that people are hyping people are talking about, even if it's not just, you know, initially it's management talking about, but then it spreads on to groups and message boards and other people and Twitter and whatever things of people that they know. And, you know, but the initial reason why it started coming out, there was management. How much of the investment industry is like that though, right? Like think about these uh, hedge funds that have a group of analysts and then they have their idea meetings and all they're doing is being fed, um, you know, stocks and research that's not even theirs and having to make investment decisions based on their analyst recommendations yeah that's true um and there's not really anything wrong with that if you have the ability to judge other people's ideas well um so like professionals doing that it depends on who they are but some of them i think that's not a terrible way of doing it if they have the right personality and the right experience to, to understand that, um, of what they're doing. Um, yeah, but, it, it, but that is more, 
Um, it, it's always better if you go and find the things. I mean, it's always safer if you go and find the things yourself without having it pushed on you, you know. But that's just like a general thing about investing in general, like, you know, um, focus on spinoffs. Don't focus on IPOs, you know, focus on yeah. things that everyone wants. To, you know, those are just general rules that will always be true and you should always pay attention to. You know, why not buy the SPACs? I mean, why would you ever buy the SPACs? You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, everything about it, right, is like... It's just the kind of thing you don't want to buy. Um, or the kind of thing you don't want to go about your way of buying something. Um, it's, it's not that it couldn't work out, but it's like if you bought your car because someone sent you something in the mail to you that said here's this car i want to sell you and it's a great price that i have on and stuff and you said okay and you bought that it might work out fine but that's not such a good way to do perform the search is to respond to direct mailing to you right there's something about that that suggests you know to be wary that that's not going to be a clean um sample of what's in the market and stuff but that actually you're getting something pushed on you right um that like you're target, they're targeting you to sell you something. The specs were targeting people to sell them something with the whole way, the structure of how it's created and everything. And like, you know, it's a, it's a way of making it. Um, it's, it's a way of creating conditions to, to, you know, sell to people that way. I mean, the, the IPO thing, it's less so now than it was when we we're talking about 20 years ago, but the whole like scarcity thing of it, that you were getting doled out this scarce resource when they would decide who would have it before. And it was going to have the one day pop, of course, and all of that, you know, that's all that, that the idea to have that one day gain and to be on the inside of getting that, that it was a scarce thing to get in on. Um, is like a whole way of, you know, promoting something. It's a, you know, it's playing on people's psychological things about how to do that. And uh, there's no need for that's how you distribute, get stock into the market. But it's like a system that was effective that way for people. Um, Because it plays to what kind of thinking they have about it. And SPACs had that too, because um, it it created the, well, there's a whole thing about what it did, but some of the things about what it was creating was a sense of, there's a lottery ticket sense to it because there's an aspect of you don't know what they're going to do with it and stuff. And then there's also a, they're playing to two things which are very powerful with people, which is that you think it's no way to lose kind of thing. That's one of the easiest ways to get people is to create a, you know, a risk-free seeming sort of thing. And also the lottery ticket sort of thing. You know, if you're going to do a stock write-up, right, you always want to say that there's a lottery ticket attached to it, right? If I'm going to do it, I want to yeah. get in Value Investors Club or whatever thing, you know, or whatever. Just like people like my post about something. Whatever stock it is, we should present it as here's the core thing and then there's this lottery ticket attached to it. That always works for people. Um, and the other thing is like that there's some floor that I can't lose money. I mean, that's the other thing when you do a write-up of something is like, well, there's no way this can go under $9, you know, because I've calculated how mm-hmm. this floor is uh, that the sum of the parts isn't less than this or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So there's certain ways to play to people's um, psychology that way. And the the thing with now with online and all of this stuff is that, you know, the, like for us value investors and stuff, some of these CEOs and stuff and, and investor relations and everything, they can read everything that we're doing. They can be online and on Twitter and whatever. They can see what words we use and what ways we think and stuff. And so they can tailor their message more towards us than used to be the case. 
Like yeah. there was just, you know, 20 years ago when I got into investing, there was really just one, it was broadcasting. It was, if you had a message about your company, everyone got that same message, you know? It was not like I'm focused in on the people who are looking for this thing or that thing. You know, there was no communities of people that were really, you know, that, um, so you couldn't present yourself as like a compounder thing, you know, in one way and then something else. Um, you had to, it was much more generic, much more generic because there weren't these communities and the social media and these sorts of things. So now you can definitely tailor it more. That's not just an investment thing. It's like an everything thing that you can narrow cast, you know. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Debolt the Bus. We are over two hours on today's podcast. We kind of switched it up. Normally we do a topic and then stocks, but this podcast we did stocks and got a topic out of it. Uh, so all is well. Uh, if this is the first time you are tuning in with us, uh, be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening or watching. Uh, leave us a rating review. Those still go a very long way for us. It helps spread the word. Uh, we did use QuickFS on today's podcast and we use it every single day so if you want to sign up for that go to quickfs.net one thing we didn't do was actually download the financials uh, if you click this button right here you could download 20-year financials in an excel format um, it's uh, one of my favorite features about quickfs and uh, you have to be a member to get 20-year financials for that so uh, go to quickfs.net and when you do sign up because you certainly will uh, tell them that you heard about them from Focus Compounding. If you're interested in learning about our money management services, go to focuscompounding.com, hit that invest with us tab right here, and you'll get everything you want to know about that. Uh, you could reach out to me at andrewfocuscompounding.com to uh, start that conversation. I thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us. We are the number one value investing podcast in the world, undisputed. Uh, we really appreciate you spending time with us. And we will see you next week in our next podcast. Take care.